Hello listeners everywhere. Welcome to the Archive of Audio Antiquities, a voyage into the vault of wonders on the wireless. In a moment, Simon Exton and Ken Moss will be here to speak to you. Hello everyone, and a very warm welcome back to the Archive of Audio Antiquities. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And this time we're listening to the 1996 BBC radio drama, The Quatermass Memoirs. Back in the 1950s, I wrote three serials for television about a scientist called Quatermass, who experienced some world-threatening encounters with alien life forms. Now that decade has sometimes been called one of paranoia, which means abnormal, sick attitudes and irrational fears. Well, I don't think it was irrational to be fearful at that time. There was a lot to be frightened of. And perhaps stories like mine were a sort of controlled paranoia, inoculation against the real horrors. We'd only had a few years of peace. Britain was still rationed. Yet suddenly there was war again on the other side of the world in Korea. And by 1950, our troops had joined the conflict. As well as the Quatermass memoirs, we're going to listen to a couple of other bits of Quatermass audio. So we're going to listen to the episode of the Goons radio show called The Scarlet Capsule. And we're going to listen to the surviving audio soundtrack of the Hancock's Half Hour episode, The Horror Serial. The first thing up tonight is the Quatermass Memoirs. It was a radio drama documentary broadcast in five episodes on Radio 3 in 1996. It was written by Nigel Neal and born out of the Quatermass series of films and TV series, primarily the 50s ones. This was set between Quatermass and the Pit and the Quatermass Conclusion. And the idea of the programmes was to create a vision of the 1950s. It was part of a season of programmes looking back at the 1950s. It's sort of semi-drama, semi-interview with Nigel Neal, and if you can have a three-way semi, semi-newsreel clips from the time. What did you think? The first thing that struck me is when you were saying it was 1996, because listening to it, it seemed very, very much to be an intro to Quatermass Conclusion. Yes. If it's 1996, is this the last thing he wrote? Because I know his last television was the the Kavanagh QC. Kavanagh, wasn't it? I think that was written a bit before that. I think it was in the 96th season, which would have mean it was written in 95 or even earlier. So have we just listened to the last thing that Nigel Neal wrote? I've because- just been looking through my notes. I can't find that is the last thing he wrote, but I'm, I'm willing to be corrected. Quatermass in this is played by Andrew Keir. He was about the only, I think he was, the only surviving Quatermass at the time. And, and also the only per. oh, no, I was going to say the only person to play Quatermass. No, no. that um, terrible Don Levy bloke was the only person to play Quatermass twice, wasn't he? Yeah, I kind of try and forget that because I love the Quatermass Experiment film because it's the thing that introduced me to Quatermass in the first place and my grandmother loved it and it was repeated quite often, but whenever it was on telly, she and I used to set time aside to watch it. But he is dreadful in it. It, well, it's the only thing I've ever watched where I want the main character to die because he's such an arsehole. But we'll park that to one side. This version is played by Andrew Keir from the third movie, Quasimus in the Pit, the Hammer film, and they got him back to do the BBC radio thing. It's a lovely performance, actually, and I have to say... I think I prefer Quatermass as a Scotsman. It just feels more... 
I'm tempted to say gritty, real and doer. But that sounds very anti-Scottish, which I try not to be. But he just fits the role much better. Quatermass, by this point, is quite jaded by society. He's gone to live almost as a hermit in Scotland, on his own in a cottage with his housekeeper. And a journalist turns up on his door to interview him about his work in the 1950s on British Rocket Group. He's initially quite dismissive of her, tells her to go away. She flutters her eyelids and flatters him a little bit. And eventually ends up staying for about three or four days at Quatermass's invitation while he recounts tales of his life. In between this, there are interview segments with, or there are monologue segments rather, with Nigel Neal recounting how Quatermass came about, his visions for the stories, and also newsreel clips at the time. By dint of the way that it's produced and the series of programmes that it was forming part of, A lot of it is concerned with nuclear war and the atom bomb and fear of that at the time. It's beautifully produced and well-performed, but it's basically a five-episode trailer for the Quatermass serials and a recap for them. I didn't find myself particularly gripped by it. I have to be honest in that it comes across as neither one thing nor the other. Yes. And there are two possible directions this could have gone into, either of which would have worked brilliantly. But actually, it's tried to tread a middle ground and it hasn't worked. So you could either have done an pure interview with Nigel Neal with the Quatermass footage and the real life footage of things that influenced him at the time, such as the Hungarian uprising. And that would have been brilliant. That would have been an absolutely spellbinding listen. You could also have gone for a completely fictionalised account of this journalist turning up at Professor Quatermass's croft and doing a rediscovery of all of the things that happened in the BBC series, culminating in her warning him off visiting London ahead of his visit in the Quatermass conclusion. Now, again, that would have been brilliant, but the time for that was 1978 leading up to the Quatermass conclusion. So had we had that as a sort of precursor to the Quatermass conclusion, that would have worked very well. It's a mishmash. It's a bit of both. And to my mind, doesn't work as well as either of those would have worked. Now, my preference absolutely would have been an extended interview with Nigel Neal with inserts from the Quatermass serials and also with inserts from newsreels at the time that would have been not just his influences in the 1950s which was the most interesting thing about it to listen to to me i didn't particularly care for the fictionalization stuff no matter how well done it was it was the neil interview and his his inspirations for writing quatermass it would have been very interesting to listen to that going forward and what his inspirations were for writing the quatermass conclusion Yeah, I've got to agree with all of that. It was neither one thing nor the other. And they were very clever because there were sound clips from all the Quatermass serials, or certainly the first three. And they were done in such a way that Quatermass himself, because he was played by three different actors across the three different series, they were very careful not to include dialogue from Professor Quatermass. And I think that that was quite a good thing. Or from Paula. Oh, dear, oh, dear. She wasn't in it, old thing. She couldn't get the rights, couldn't get the contract sorted out just in time. Daddy. Dear, dear Paula. The most RP person ever to grace the airwaves. I think she was the head of drama's daughter, which might explain why she had a career. 
Yes, so um, I don't really have a lot to say about the Quatermass Memoirs. It's there, and I'm slightly disappointed with it because I think that it could have been a lot more. If they'd done a proper Quatermass radio serial with Andrew Keir, I think that would have been really bloody good because he is good as Quatermass. And on the back of this, I can't wait to see the film. But in itself, it's a bit of a curio and uh, a bit of a disappointment as well, I'm afraid. It's trying to be too many different things and not completely succeeding at any of them. The thing that it succeeds best at is the Nigel Neal interview. And then you get to the fictionalization bit and you just think, for fuck's sake, get on with it. Because I, I want to go back to listening to the organ grinder. <laughs> well, the next thing that we listen to, just mopping up all the Quatermass bits and Quatermass theme things, is The Goon Show. This is episode 14 of series 9 from 1959, and the plot pricey on the BBC website is basically Professor Ned Quatermass unravels a mystery around some enigmatic blue surge suits. Here comes Professor Ned Quatermass. Whoopee! <laughs> <laughs> now, what's all this about, eh? What, what, what? Look at that. Oh. Something's under the ground. So it is. It's hard. Here, hold my coconut tree while I have a look. This is a job for those sons of fun, the army. Now, this is where I'm going to invite letters of complaint, because I thought that was dog shit. I have previously not been very complimentary about a TV series from the 60s that Simon Loves and I don't call The Corridor People. It's complete surrealist nonsense, the dialogue's terrible, the plots are worse. The Goon Show, this was a big thing at the time. Huge, enormous on radio, and it's the most terrible shit. The dialogue is almost unintelligible. It's basically half an hour of silly voices. It's the radio equivalent of Monty Python, which, again, I'm not one of these people who worships every inch of footage about Monty Python. There are flashes of brilliance and flashes of terribleness and not much in between. The Goon Show, that was a real struggle to get through half an hour. And in the middle, you've got some Larry Adler-esque harmonica bit. That was terrible. There was no plot as such. It was just four men twatting about with silly voices. I was bored rigid. Okay, I think you're being a little bit harsh on The Goon Show there. I mean, I listened to quite a lot of The Goon Show as a teenager because I I happened to have some tapes of it while I was doing a family trip around France and it was preferable to listening to my French cousins um, (laughs) being unbelievably rude, not realising that I could actually understand what they were saying in French. By series nine, it had become incredibly formulaic and people were interested in the different characters, which translates to a modern audience to the silly voices. The Goon Show was incredibly innovative when it first started because everything before then had been very RP sketch show. And they were really the ones to break the mould of that, which led on to other more alternative comedies. And they were the comic strip of their time. But it is very definitely of their time. It's clearly a BBC Light Entertainment thing because you have the music breaks and 
Actually, the music breaks are pretty good because it was Ray Ellington. No slouch in musical terms. And I'm with you. I didn't particularly enjoy it. I don't particularly enjoy re-listening to the goons now. I mean, bear in mind that we are prepping for Round the Horn which is a forthcoming episode that we're going to do. You've said there about the formulaic sketch show and the recognisable characters and the silly voices, but from what I've heard of Round the Horn, that's exactly what Round the Horn was, just done better. But this, yeah, but the, to go- me- the Goon Show wasn't a sketch show. That was the whole point about it. Everything coming beforehand had been very much light entertainment, kind of hangover from the, the old Variety Hall programme. So it was somebody doing their bit and then somebody else doing their bit and somebody else doing their bit. And there, there might be a bit of a skit around it. And the, the Goon Show kind of broke that mould. And it enabled things, other radio comedy and other more innovative radio comedy to come along. Now, we'll come on and talk about Round the Horn in more detail. But there was nothing particularly groundbreaking in the structure of Round the Horn. The things that they did, yeah, different story. But how they did it wasn't particularly innovative. We're not talking about Round the Horn. We're not. We're talking about the Goon talking Show. About the but bear in mind, this started in 1950. And the first series wasn't called The Goon Show. That was from series two onwards. Oh, what was it called? Because I, I hadn't realised that. I know Chuck Ears was a big fan. I read it the other day in preparation for this episode, and I now cannot find the name of the first series. But yeah. Which was uh, initially called Crazy People. That was the one, yes. I suspect that's probably right, because it's a perturative term now, but I think oh yeah, all of the four main performers in The Goon Show had their mental health problems. But just looking at it at the time, it's so far away from the formulaic show and the wearing a dinner suit, reading the news, BBC at the time. 1950, five years after the war, I yeah, think everybody either making and listening to this must have been suffering from PTSD. I just can't see why this would have appealed to a lot of people at the time, and yet this was a really popular thing. It baffles me, this. When it first started, I'm not sure it was a really popular thing. I don't think it had popular appeal. I think it had a lot of people that it spoke to and who wanted something more light-hearted than the the very generic stuff that they'd had beforehand. But I'm not sure that the first iteration of The Goon Show was actually that popular, in the same way as the first iteration of Monty Python wasn't that popular. And subsequent revision has seen just how visionary it was. I don't find it particularly entertaining, but I can listen to it and hear that it's historically interesting. Oh, likewise. I can hear the historical value in it and how it pushed things forward. But for myself, it's not something I would come back to. No, and me neither. But we listened to it 70 years afterwards with an entire plethora of radio comedy that has come on the coattails of the goons. We wouldn't have something like the League of Gentlemen if all those decades beforehand, the goons hadn't come along and triggered things like, I'm sorry, I'll read that again, and triggered things like... I'm just trying to think myself now. But no, I can see how it lit the fire of things don't have to be people in suits doing sketches. I get it. I just don't think that from what I've heard of it, I'm struggling to see how it got beyond. Well, this is something a little bit different, but we'll... um, We'll just pretend that never happened. Yes. Yeah. And in exactly the same way, in terms of theatre, Shakespeare opened it up to a, a wider audience. In terms of prose, Chaucer opened it up to a wider audience. Trying to read either of those now is... Pulling uh, teeth. crap out of me, frankly. Yeah. But moving I, on to something that isn't pulling teeth, our final show of the evening is Hancock's Half Hour. 
This is an episode that doesn't exist. Uh, It's called The Horror Serial, and it's the sixth episode of Series 4 of Hancock's Half Hour from the 30th of January 1959, and this is very much based, again, on Quatermass and the Pit. Hancock has been watching the last episode of The Horror Serial, Quatermass and the Pit, and is now in a very nervous state. When he discovers an unknown object in his garden, Sid thinks it's an unexploded bomb and calls in the bomb squad. But Hancock is convinced it's an extraterrestrial craft. Now, this is one of the, there were, I think there were 12, 11 or 12 episodes in that series. Four were recorded, the rest were transmitted live. This is one of the live ones. And the only reason we've got it is because somebody recorded an off-air recording at home. So we've got a a slightly ropey audio copy, although I believe the better one's turned up since. Hancock's half hour. Have a drop of brandy. All right, that normally during the day, but under the second. Oh, Steve, I don't want to go through an experience like that again. Now, look, we went round on my mum's and we watched television. Now, what is all the fuss about? You didn't see it. You were asked round the pub getting a pipe of scout and a crisp. <laughs> I didn't see what? The quaker mask in the pit. Hit back in the last time I meet this. I'll never be the same again. <laughs> It's perfectly listenable. Yes. I have read descriptions online that say it's unlistenable. You've got to listen, but I've heard things in worse states. Yeah, the original Parsley Sidings before they tidied it up, and the TV lark is very difficult to listen to. But we're not talking about either of those. We're talking about the horror serial. I really enjoyed it. I really like Hancock's Half Hour. Again, there's nothing particularly innovative about it. But he is a great central character with a great ensemble cast around him. He is, and I very much enjoyed this. This Hancock's Half Hour. For those that aren't familiar, Hancock plays a stylized version of himself. He's the archetypal bloke down the pub or person on Twitter. They've read a couple of articles online and they are suddenly an expert in everything. That is basically the Hancock character. And it's quite painful to listen to because you know so many people or come across so many people that are like that in everyday life. Anybody that does use the Bird app will know exactly the type. But he's digging a a bomb shelter because he's quite convinced the Martians are going to invade any time after having seen Quatermass. Goes digging a bomb shelter and he finds this thing, just like Quatermass did when they went digging in the pit. And it can't be scratched or marked. Bomb squad come in. Leader of the Bomb Squad, played by John LeMessurier, and his lieutenant, played by Garman, out of Genesis of the Daleks, Dennis Chinnery. So they excavate the thing and show that it's very definitely a bomb. Hancock, all the way through, is trying to prove that this is an alien spaceship, and eventually, even when they've uncovered it and it's got Achtung written on the side... He's still still quite convinced that's Martian for Acton, and they've only missed it by 30 miles. So it's a one-man Martian spaceship. He goes to his next-door neighbour trying to prove that there's strange goings-on over the past 30 years. It actually turns out that his neighbour's wife has just been having an affair. That's where all the strange activity and sailors' caps on the banister have appeared from. And in the end, Sid James, who's called in the bomb squad to start with, somehow doesn't know that there's going to be a controlled detonation, 
and uh, gets caught in the explosion and ends up in hospital. And then Hancock again, because he's seen a programme on television the night before, starts telling him how he's been bandaged up wrong. And the whole cycle starts again. It's very well-written stuff. I really did enjoy this. Yes, it would be great to see this. It really would. But actually, we don't need to, because it's effectively a two-hander between Hancock and Sid James. It works very well as an audio thing, because the vast majority of it will just be the two of them bouncing off each other in their front room. And it doesn't really matter what the background is. I was going to say, compared to the the goons, I enjoyed this vastly more. But that's damning it with faint praise. I did enjoy listening to this. It's one of those things, again, just veering off onto an archive note, we're lucky to have it all. Because if it wasn't for those early radio listeners and television watchers wiring in tape decks and recording these things, you know, you're talking about recordings that are 60, 70 years old. The fact that they even survive at all is a bit of a bloody miracle. So the fact that we can talk about it in 2021 and enjoy these things against all odds is marvellous. And you wonder how many audio recordings were done of other things at the same time that haven't survived i've told you about my don't my mom's cousin. no Ugh. yeah i'm afraid you have told me all about that he could have had quatermass he didn't do any tv recording it was all radio but he had oh, boxes God. and boxes and boxes of desert island discs that were all chucked out when he died and i guess it, i could have asked for them i didn't think of it i wasn't offered them I've no doubt that his wife would have let me have them had I seen any value in them. But I didn't find Desert Islandness very interesting. I still don't find Desert Islandness very interesting. I now recognise the historical importance of them, yeah. which I wouldn't have done in the early 90s when he died. Well, it's only night now when, are- when things turn up. There's a lot of stuff turning up, almost weekly. We're, again, we're lucky. But a lot of it doesn't interest me at all. But uh-huh. someone somewhere out there will either want it or it will have some value. It's worth having just to fill a gap. The problem is that what will be happening now is old people who've died whose houses are being cleared by relatives who don't recognise the value in stuff. And oh, this is old shit, so we sling it out. This is his crappy film collection. Yeah, I can't be asked to put it on eBay, stick it in a skip. The thought has occurred. It's not a comfortable one. I try not to think about it. But I just find it quite interesting that the two things that we've listened to that aren't Quatermass tonight, they were done within a month of each other. So Quatermass and the Pit, obviously we've looked back at it now and me and you have both gushed over it extensively in an Exton Moss podcast. It must have been a big thing at the time. Oh, massive. Absolutely massive. And I'm kind of surprised that in terms of the style, those two do not sound within a month of each other. Hancock is relatable to a modern audience. You could remake that with people from EastEnders and it would be seen as a quirky but entertaining drama. You could try remaking The Goon Show and the response of the vast majority of people would be, what the fuck are you trying to make me, make me listen to? <laughs> Whereas at the time, The Goons are probably the ones that would have been seen as the more off-the-wall and experimental Hancock would have been seen as more mainstream. So, it's time for the Earworm Scale. This is the song that never ends. Yes, it goes on and on, my friends. Quatermass Memoirs, what do we think? Six. Yeah, I'd go with that. Yeah, six. It's, it's not unentertaining. It's just not brilliant. It's well made. Yeah. Meh. The Neil stuff is superb. The fictionalisation adds 
nothing at all. And by the time you get into 1996, realistically, if people wanted to find out what had happened in, in previous Quatermass serials, then read the books. They'd been available since the 1950s. The Goon Show, The Scarlet Capsule. Three. Yeah. Because of the historical value, I will give it a three. But I really didn't enjoy that. That is lower on my personal enjoyment list than The Corridor People. That's that order of magnitude. And finally, Hancock. Seven. Really? Now, oh, I'm going to nudge back to an eight. I really enjoyed that, and it's got historical value as well, on so many levels. I enjoyed that, but it's very old-fashioned, and if it existed as a watchable drama, I would probably rate it higher, but it doesn't. Yep, yeah, yeah, I can so see that. Eights, nines would be the good, viewable Hancock, so Blood Donut, Radio Ham, Radio. all of those classic ones. With visuals, for all that I said that it, it was a quite a non-visual story, with visuals I might have bumped it up but as it is seven. But I, I enjoyed it a lot. We have one thing left to do. We do. It's the podcast of the week. I want to recommend heartily the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour. Oh, Jesus, yes. Now, God, this is something. So, so good. The two guys from the northeast. They look at old television programs, but in contrast to the way we do it, where we dig up stuff that's slightly archaic and people might not have be aware of it, these two, they dig up the most popular things from the time, largely from the late 70s, early 80s, and critique them. They'll pick a random episode and watch it, and they're just hilarious, these guys. I can listen to them over and over and over again. Their bod episode, I can almost do word for word because I've listened to it so many times. <laughs> Whereas mine is the blankety blank one. Of all the ones that we've listened to, this is the one for me. They did the 12 Days of Christmas and that must have taken some doing because it was half an hour of finished podcast every day for 12 days. That's a lot of editing. So hats off, guys. They must have started their Christmas watching even before you did. Before me, I would say. My Christmas and watching And you, you start yours in July. in July. Yes. Look them out. They're very similar, actually, in style to us on Exton Moss. They're just done in a little bit more of a light-hearted way. Because they have a drink while they're doing it. Very impressed. They do research and we don't bother. Yeah, they do. They do. They make copious notes and we just, as you put it, tip up with gin. So on that note, boys and girls, we will sign off. We'll be back next month when we're looking at the big finished Doctor Who story, The Daughter of Time. Until then, happy listening. We'll be with you soon. Bye now. The Archive of Audio Antiquities featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss, and the announcer was Jenny at Blue Box 99. All featured soundtracks are the property of their respective producers, and no infringement of copyright is intended. Title music was by Edward White, and the programme was produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit maverickproductionsuk.blogspot.com or find us on social media.